How is the weather over in New York? How is life? Yeah, over how are right things now? in New York? Yeah, things things shifted quite a bit. It was um, about 80, 85 degrees. And um, and then the last two days, it was 60 and rainy, as cold as 50. And <laughs> I uh, hard to uh, hard to think that not the climate hasn't shifted some when it goes down like 30 degrees in, in, in just two days. But um, not the best weather this, this weekend. I, yeah. I have I have visited New York a few times and it's always a different weather every time I go there. What time of year did you visit? Usually I go to uh, for Christmas and then I, I've been there for summer, which was one of the worst summers I've been. Like it was so hot. And I was just perplexed because I thought like it's so far north. It shouldn't be shouldn't be hot. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be that hot. That's what you would think, huh? Yeah. Are you born and raised in New York? Yeah, born, born and raised oh. in New York City. I actually sold ices for two summers on the sidewalks uh, when I was a teenager and acclimated to, I made a real Pavlovian uh, change to enjoy hot weather because it meant I got a lot of money. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet that was a good business in the summer. <laughs> Anytime 90 plus, I'd walk home with $100. So um, anything... Yeah, yeah. So I, I have this really great association with heat. <laughs> you just had to withstand the heat yourself because you're selling them outdoors, right? Yeah, the trick was just not to eat your profits, you know? Yeah, that would be the <laughs> hardest true. part for me. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, we're doing good here. It's um, getting hot in Tokyo and unfortunately super humid. Have you been? Yeah, you said you had a performances here, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been in Tokyo four or five times, I think. Um, oh, nice. Through the acrobatic dance performance, we, we did a, my partner and I did a lot of performance in the salsa dance scene. And early on um, in, the, in Japan, in Tokyo, they had some of the best uh, Latin dancing outside of the States was in Tokyo and um, in a really amazing community. And so... When we did our world tour, uh, we made friends with the Japanese organizer named George. And it was interesting. The first thing he did, he brought us to a grave, uh, his family's grave, to um, have a uh, party. And he said this, like, in the Japanese culture, the relationship to the graveyard is very different. And I don't know. Have you guys? We've never been invited never. to that anything like so that. Yeah. <laughs> Not even <laughs> weddings. <laughs> wow, you, you're really VIP there. That's a rare opportunity, I'd say. <laughs> it might have been, you know, not true. And maybe it was one way to. <laughs> 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 that way you didn't have to take a, you know, no expensive tour, that, you know. So I, I, I don't know. But but there were other people, too. They were all partying in the graveyard. It was it seemed to be a bit of a scene. Wow. Interesting. interesting. I wonder what time of year that was, because it could be a certain time of year where families do gather it was with the cherry blossom. Uh, oh, okay. Time of cherry blossom. So sometime in April, I think. We'll have mm -hmm. to look that up later because I'm not aware of that tradition. <laughs> I mean, maybe we are not that in. Like, I guess so. Like three, four, five years here isn't enough. Like, nope, like, not enough. <laughs> you're a dancer? Then yes. Yeah, that's your ticket in to yeah. the graveyard. <laughs> Anyway, should we should we yeah. bring the music in? Yeah, let's All get right. it off.
everybody, welcome back to the Don't Tell My Grandma podcast, coming to you live from our cozy abode here in Japan. And we are really excited today because we have an amazing guest with an amazing story. And they have really touched us both. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really a real honor to uh, have the opportunity to bring to our listeners this great story. David Paris is a seven-time cabaret dance champion and a finalist in American Got Talent. That was very surprising. By the way, the video was really good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the co-director of the acrobatic dance company Paradiso Dance with Zoe Klein. Uh, he has performed over 100 dance con- congresses around the world and has produced 13 instructional videos in Latin dance and partner, ca- uh, partner acrobatics. David, you've written a book that has really there's there's been a few books that I've taken notes like, wow, this is a this is a, a gold nugget as you said. Uh, last Many night, gold love. nuggets, yeah. yeah. And this one has given us a lot, and and uh, I really appreciate that. David, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Is there anything we missed? Yeah, we did our best. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's already quite a lot about me, so I'm hesitant to say more about me. But thank you so much for. Um, having me on the podcast and sharing a little bit about both the COVID story, the book I wrote, and my uh, acrobatic dance past, and so so exciting to to say hi to everybody. Hi everybody! Yeah, we can't wait to talk with you. And you did. We did um, not mention that you are also a teacher, right? Very which important. I can yes, I can connect with. And uh, you've been teaching since I think 1993, because that's that's my birth year. So I remember that detail. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been teaching 28 years or 29 years now in, in New York City. And I teach in, in middle school. I started uh, as a religion major in college, really trying to find uh, mysticism and and um, thinking I would become one one with the Buddha. And I went out to the boat where he was enlightened and I visited all these Indian ashrams. And I discovered I was really terrible at meditating and staring at the wall. And I thought to myself, uh, yeah, I think I have to give this up that. I did love the Indian food, but, uh, and, and, and the people. And I, that's where I discovered actually my, my new vocation. It's like, well, you know, I love thinking and I love people. And that's, I said, I'm gonna go back and change my majors and be a teacher. I joined Teach for America in 1993, the third third class. I started in the South Bronx in some very difficult circumstances. And I now have the firm belief, if you really want to grow up fast, uh, start teaching out of college. And uh, that will make you, the, the moment they you walk into a classroom and you're not your best self, they'll tear you up. And it's, it's a great education to uh, bring out the best in you. So um, yeah, I don't, it's not for everybody, but uh, I started there and then loved it and been doing it now for 28 years. Wow, that's great. Well, we're so excited to hear more about your history and obviously your COVID story because yeah. not a lot of people have been able to share their experiences, especially to the length of your story. And not a lot of people that I, fortunately, we don't know any family members or friends who have been infected and hospitalized. We're yes. very fortunate for that. The stories about the people who have been in the hospital and have recovered, like have had the whole experience are very scarce. So we really appreciate to have this one. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book. You know, it's funny when I came out of the, I was, for those people who don't know, I, I was in, uh, I got COVID very early in the pandemic. Um, the end of March, I was in the hospital for three months. I was in a coma for a month. I was the sickest person 
in the hospital that survived. Um, they, it was uh, only because New Yorkers flattened the curve was I, the ventilator was not enough. I was, you know, uh, I, I went, I went they, they said I had the lungs of cement which was kind of odd because I really always wanted out to steal, but <laughs> I've got a little bit weird, <laughs> you know, and when I uh, got there, I didn't think I was going to be, I think I was going to be all right, but apparently um, I, my heart stopped four times and they put me on a machine called ECMO, which controls your heart and your lungs. And um, yeah, and they, they don't have many of those machines in the country, but I'm only alive today because uh, the the curve was flattened and enough healthcare was allotted for for somebody like myself. Most of people died, and I, you know, I I, I see my myself as super uh, lucky. I do remember um, waking um, in when I, you know, people a lot of times ask me. They said, "Did you see God?" And I said, "No," but I did see the Buddha. <laughs> I did, I did see the Buddha, and and the, this Japanese actually it was a Japanese Buddha in the theater showed up to me. And I remember having that moment of thinking, oh, the Buddha is telling me I was about to enter into a new, um, into the afterlife. And I was like, no, I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And the Buddha just had no words for me, just felt compassion and pain and just drew a white uh, stripe on the side of his face. And I knew that meant death. And I was like, and that panic of the moment, you know, my, my whole life, I, I feared worrying about dying um and what that would be like and in, in that moment where it's like oh this is it i every part of my body fought and i i begged the buddha please let me live and and the buddha had no words he said just compassion i know you're gonna die you're passing on and um i begged and pleaded and after hours who knows could have been days or who knows is in the dream but um finally said, i'll give you a chance but you have to fight harder than you ever have in your life um, and it's going to be the most difficult thing you've ever done. And I, when I woke up, eventually they told me that, yeah, I was on the brink of death and they didn't think I was going to make it. Many people didn't. And, you know, the, the if, if those people in the medical field, like the inflammation markers were like 2000 something. And, you know, usually if it's above 200, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. So, um, yeah, I'm fortunate to be here today. And, um, thanks to the doctors and, I wonder how much prayer helped. A lot of people were praying on my behalf. And part of it was my will. You know, it's funny, right before I went in, I, I was divorced. I didn't didn't have kids. And later in my 40s, I did a lot of my life. I said, you know what? I think I'm ready to die. I've, I've had a good life. But when I was faced at that moment, <laughs> when it said, look, you want to die, I was like, turned out, no, 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 no. I really want to live. And it's given me a lot of determination since, since waking up from that coma about how I want to live my life. It was very surprising to read how quickly you went down because uh, at least in the the way the book reads, it seems like from the beginning you were feeling ill and then immediately to a coma. How did that feel? How, how, how was that? Like, transition. It, yeah, that transition. Yeah, it was interesting because I was pretty sure I had COVID. wasn't 100% sure. Um, at the time, I when I got sick at the end of March, I was had the had shivers and and was uh more fatigued than i ever have felt in my life and i asked the doctor uh you know we did telecommunic teleconferences back then and he said no you don't have um you don't have covid and you could tell the the value of those teleconferences may may not be so good but um i said all right so for a whole week it was just just flu symptoms and worse than i've ever been but i knew it was trouble the eighth day when i woke up right in front of my fridge i opened up the fridge door uh, collapsed, fell asleep. And I, when I woke up, 
I was like, wow, this is not a good sign. And even worse is I couldn't breathe. And then that, that was a symptom back then. They didn't want you to go to the hospital unless you had the most severe symptoms. If you had mild symptoms, because they said you're more likely to get COVID if you went to the hospital than if you stayed at home. And when I was in the hospital, so many uh, nurses and um, other people told me stories of people who just dropped dead in their house. And I was this close uh, to be in that same situation because apparently I was on my last uh, guess. But I got myself to the hospital. And the moment I did, I went from barely able to breathe to couldn't breathe at all. And it was fascinating. Within seconds, they put oxygen tanks on me, had me sit down. And um, I wasn't afraid at all, to be honest, because uh, back then they, they were saying, look, this is an old person disease. Um, nobody really young got sick or very sick and certainly didn't die. I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll get the immunity and, and, and I'll have a good year um, upcoming. But sure enough, uh, that's not what happened. I guess back then we didn't know a lot about it. So that was their, their best assumption, their best guess. Right. Yeah. COVID has been throwing doctors all over the world a curveball because especially at the time when you contracted it. They just didn't know. They didn't know. They gave me experimental drugs. Um, they gave me the, I don't know in Japan if it's, uh, if they <laughs> talked about the hydrochloroquine that Trump was pushing as like, <laughs> I got that. <laughs> that just made me, oh, it was terrible. It's like a, it's a malaria type of drug. You have all these bad hallucinations and oh, it's awful. And they, they gave me a few other experiments and they're like, look, nothing's working. I think now they, if you can get people early in the right steroids, it's, they have better treatments for people uh, who may not be as severe. I came in with moderate, what they consider moderate symptoms, um, and then quickly went into severe uh, after three days or four days. But yeah, I was in the hospital for for four days, barely able to breathe. And uh, back in then, I was uh, I knew I was hallucinating quite a lot um, because I was alone in my room, yet I was shouting at everybody. <laughs> so apparently, they had to do some psychiatric tests to make sure. I was cognizant and I wasn't cognizant, but um, yeah, I, I wasn't worried because I, back then wasn't religion or it wasn't spirituality, it was statistics. It was like, look, I'm not supposed to die. And when they put me under, they say, hey, we're going to put you under. I was like, great, I'll see you. Just get me chicken sausage when I wake up for the, in the morning, you know? <laughs> and they say, it's funny. They say like the way you go under uh, when they intubate you is kind of the way you come out. And uh, I do remember coming out just being like um, a bit foggy in my head, but also wondering, all right, I'm awake. And I'd never felt more thirsty in my life. And I could tell you the, the pain of um, isolation. They say it's isolating when you're not by yourself, but it's, it's not so bad to be by yourself. It was really bad is your brain's not quite there. And then you just spend hours and hours and had a horrible fever. They had like a a cold blanket over me trying to bring my fever down and just not understanding what the world was about and wanting to just not not have to fight anymore that kind of pain is indescribable and i know you know up until then i have a mother who who is in need of a lot of care and i never really understood why she would do you know like she would have me say i can't put my glasses i'd come over to her apartment and the glasses underneath her bed where where <laughs> where she left them for me to find you know and i thought, all right, this is a desperate plea for attention, whatever. But after experiencing that pain in isolation, I was like, oh, I understand people on a whole nother level now. The level of compassion I have for anybody who suffers is people will do anything for attention when they're desperate. And I, I was absolutely like that for quite a bit of time. 
Yeah, I I made note of when I when I was reading your book, I'm not one to watch kinds of, you know, the medical shows or to be into that, like the details that you described. And the only reason I could get through the book is because you added so much humor to it, to your situation. So that really helped balance it out and it made it more digestible for me. It was also really informative and it taught me a lot about the procedures. So I appreciated that along yeah. with the- The insights yeah. from the doctors yeah. and the therapists were really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, I made, for the audience, I made a book um, as readable as possible. I'm a middle school teacher in New York City. So that means if I'm not interesting, those kids, the kids are going to destroy me. <laughs> so uh, I write the way I teach and for that reason, you know? So um, I kept out anything that was extraneous. I kept it funny. You know, any jokes like, uh, you know, getting a, being a coma is actually not so bad because you lose a lot of weight. And then when you wake up, um, your Amazon bill is down to zero, which is great until you get your hospital bill. And then <laughs> it's like kind of matches up back in the end, you know? So, you know, keep, I try to keep it light, but I also made sure uh, to keep all the voices of the doctors and the nurses. And I did about 30 different interviews of people who were involved in my case so that it's not just my voice, it was everyone's voice. And I also just it shared that my journey while facing near death is, is the extremes of what one could face in the pandemic. It also is everybody's story because we all were isolated and we all have to reconnect to what it means to be human, uh, our connection to what other people, changing our mental mindset. And that for me was probably the, one of the deepest um, experiences that I think is for me, but I think it's for everybody. I know that like for a long time, for the first month I was in the hospital, all I felt was just the, uh, the, the love of people uh, giving me attention saying, wow, you're a miracle. You, you made it. That was incredible. And I was like, wow, I'm so lucky. And then the one day I had this horrible thought and <laughs> it was weird. It was like, not even in my body. It was on the left side of my, of my of the side. And I thought, if I go down this road, I know it's not going to look good, but sometimes when you have something that seems compelling, you grab it anyway. So I grabbed the thought and I had the thought, wait a second, maybe I'm not lucky. I'm also unlucky. My brother didn't get sick. He was my size, same age. You know, uh, all these other New Yorkers didn't get sick. How come I got sick? And I was miserable. That just one thought sent me into a vortex of, of, of victimization and, and, and um, self-sabotage, to, to be honest. Um, and it was only at the end of a week that I remembered a very old uh, Cherokee legend about a grandfather who talks about inside of every human being, there are two wolves. A bad wolf that's this angry, mean, and jealous, uh, and a good wolf that's kind and generous and has a lot of uh, gratitude. And and the grandson will ask the uh, ask the grand grandfather says, "Grandfather, uh, who wins with these two wolves?" And the grandfather says, "The one you feed." And I never understood that story until I had these two, you know, thoughts and emotions are a bit weird because they, when you just have a feeling and you just think you 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 think you're experiencing the world the way it is. And, in, and to some degree you are, but you're definitely missing a lot. Depression's like that, victimization is like that. And I knew I was feeding, had, the more I grabbed that thought and put it into me, the more I was sinking into pain. And everybody around me, the doctors who used to love me were now like, oh yeah, this is the depressed uh, patient, we, we gotta work with him. And um, it was only when I decided this, these set of thoughts don't work for me. And so I described that a lot in the book and, and um, that's a theme throughout, uh, from the beginning to the end, 
And I think it's not just my story, I think it's everybody's story, that we all face those two worlds. And what does it mean to acknowledge our thoughts as some, well, it's easy when you come out of a coma to doubt your thoughts because um, you start, <laughs> I was having like uh, weird dreams of being a cyborg and trying to slip out of my bed at night or because there were pirates trying to kill me and I had to leave. And so yeah, my, I wasn't, <laughs> I do had to doubt myself quite a bit, but who knew uh, it would actually became a, uh, a good epistemological uh, opening to say uh, maybe, maybe a thoughts aren't so healthy sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I made note of one of the um, statements you made in your book and you said, just by questioning the truth to one's thoughts and beliefs, one can create a new possibility of seeing the world differently. And it took, unfortunately for you, it took this trauma for you to come to realization, but it really, it's kind of a wake up call. Like, yeah, you are in control of your thoughts and you can reinvent yourself and your purpose if you if you feel like you have you're ready to love yourself and find that self-worth then I think that's time when when, that's the time when you can start reinventing who you are it was that was that way for me one of my favorite stories one of my favorite dreams um, I've been a lifelong acrobatic dancer uh, won seven championships was America's Got Talent, did a lot of good things, but I was never still happy. And I, I still wanted more. Um, and unfortunately, I got divorced and separated from my partner. And we went from performing around the world to doing one show every few months. And I left, um, I left the world back into the coma, still like wanting more. Um, and in the middle of, you know, my dance partner, she's so great. When I was in the coma, she played salsa music in our performances 24-7. And I remember that. I was in the dream uh, having wild time performing at these like luxury hotels and having the, the best time. And part of my dreams were actually quite, quite fun. Um, and I remember this one moment where finally this lifelong passion for achieving something that was so elusive for my life was finally in front of me. And, and what, it, what, it, what it represented was finding a, a diamond in the bottom of the earth. And I knew that, wow, I'm going to go for that diamond. But if I do that, I have to run over people. I didn't give it a second thought. I was like, I've been searching this my whole life. I'm running over everybody. So I was in this convertible. I had this hot woman next to me. I took the diamond. I took it to the top of the world. And I finally, after all these years, decades of like seeking some, some elusive satisfaction of, of being there, I did it. I got it. And in that same moment, I was cut viciously in half by a spirit that manifested. And um, that spirit showed me that all of my thoughts about what happiness was, was actually the biggest illusion in the world. And that what actually existed was this multiverse and all these universes just showed up to me on my right side. And I, I have changed, this is one year ago, from that moment forward, I was given a gift of saying, wow, you've been pursuing something for your happiness that was never in you. It was always something you were gonna achieve that you had to do to get happy. And that was never the case. It was actually something you can do now. And um, it's interesting that I can still, I still perform, but when I perform and when I do my acrobatics, I don't do it anymore for future happiness. I do it for the happiness I can experience in the moment. And I would never have had that had I not been in the coma. I'm not saying that everybody should get sick to experience spiritual truth. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) ideally read the book and and then you you can save yourself a whole, uh, (laughs) for me, it, it was, you know, after many years in our world, I think a lot, I'm sure I'm not the only one, 
that we're, we're constantly thinking we, we're not enough just as we are and what we do and living by our values that we're only enough by what we do. And um, that is a mistaken point of view. <laughs> it's not the wolf that's going to give you the most satisfaction. Yeah, I remember very clearly reading about the part where you were mentioning that a lot of people feel the capitalistic ideal of your worth is decided by what you bring to the market. I guess like the way I interpreted that was like, we are usually, or we're most of the time, we are the gatekeepers of our own happiness. We are deciding whether we are happy or not. And we tend to say to ourselves, like, where I'm, I can't be happy until I have this or until I make that or until all these things happen uh, without understanding that we can just say, like, I can't just be happy now and everything else can just be the color of my life, right? Like what, what gives the, the spice, right? What decides where you whether you're happy or not is not outside of you, it's inside mm -hmm. of you. And uh, I, I really love how, how beautifully you put it on, on that section of your book, because like sometimes it's difficult to understand for people that it has been something that we have indoctrinated, we have been indoctrinated by culture that is the ideal capitalistic. Like, yeah, it's just, just you, you just were told that, but that's not the truth. And sometimes, as you said, it takes terrible trauma to realize like what wait no yeah i actually it was partly the trauma and then partly like i had a great psychologist in the, in my uh, rehab who really helped me connect to i did struggle quite a bit with quite a few things but one of them was this uh i was just in shock and um just crying all the time and i couldn't figure out why and she helped me relook at who i was and then in looking who i was what my values were And by connecting to my value of growth and connection, I could see that just me dancing was already achieving the goal that I wanted to be happy. Like I thought only, right, as you said, only afterwards, but only now if I'm acting out of the things that I'm doing that's connected to the values that are important to me to do that, I have to connect to what my values are. Um, I think it's called uh, ACT or something, uh, EFT, some, there's some form of uh, therapy that she was doing, but it was, it was immensely helpful. And um, it's funny, I, I talk about in the book uh, my relationship with my dance partner, his one-year-old son. And, you know, he never waits to celebrate his success. Like, <laughs> you know, before he started walking, he was celebrating just being able to stand, you know? And uh, it was such a funny experience to, to be around him. He loves putting his hand in between the cushion And just like going, wow, this is the best. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, I used to be like that too. And um, it was just a wonderful opening. I don't know if it was a spiritual choice, a higher, higher force to match me up with the one-year-old. But the one-year-old gave me new perspective of just valuing the moment for what it is and not seeking um, to have to do something. And like you said, it, it's when we grow up in a capitalist environment or any environment that's not valuing who we are, uh, but only but what, by what we produce, it's it's a belief system that's gonna, that for me to this day, it's still not easy, but every day I return to, um, to undo the old beliefs and replace them with the value of, of who I am and what I can bring or what I like to do. And you know, one of the things, you know, I love to read, I love to dance, um, I love to write, um, and I love uh, burnt hamburgers, you know? <laughs> so like, 
<laughs> so like uh, these are the things that that help me connect when I can connect to the things I'm wanting to do for my own joy, not because I need a, I'm getting some elusive attention. But I also say there's a spirit. A spirit came and cut me in half. I don't know if that would have happened um, otherwise. And uh, maybe it was a uh, maybe it was after dancing in my dreams for weeks at a time that I realized it was all elusive. Um, and that dream only happened because I felt it, you know, that realization came to me from the dream, but whatever it was, um, it's still with me now and something I, I'm super interested in sharing with as many people as possible. And, you know, I think we do that for other people. We do it, we don't do it for ourselves though. We love the people that we're connected to and we, we don't need them to be more, yet we don't do that for ourselves. And that's, I'm not saying I do that all the time. I'm working on that every day, um, but it's a much better journey than trying to get happy only by, you know, the highest levels of achievement. But to be said, it doesn't mean I'm not still trying to get back in America's Got Talent and try to win it this time. I did call, that's right. I called the producer up and I said, hey, look, man, I got a great story. You know, um, uh, I, I almost died. I'm, I'm, uh, me and my partner, we're working to get back. I can do most of the moves I used to do. A uh, little nerve damage still there. So it's a good story. And he said, man, we just finished uh, season 18. But season 19, where you're, you're going to be first on the list. So. Can't wait to, to see that. Yeah. It was really nice to see how much love you received, mm -hmm. especially when you, were, when you were describing when you were coming back. And it's something that a lot of people feel like, oh, that, that definitely must be like so wonderful. Especially after feeling, feeling yeah. like you're so insignificant, like yes. you really didn't have people who cared in your circle or, you know, everyone puts so much pressure on people to get married and have children. And since you didn't have that, you felt like, oh, I don't have anything yeah. to go back to. Yes. Yeah. But once you realize you could take that cloak off, that cloak of insig feeling insignificant, I think that's very powerful. And I wanted to ask you, can you describe how this felt the moment you realized this truth? Yeah, sure. Um, in, so in the book, I describe waking up in this immense pain. And it's one of the uh, loneliness was one, but then other ones, just like you said, I was just um, had this old vision of what happiness, what life should be like. Um, and the should what life should be is is absolutely one of those uh, bad wolves <laughs> that plagued me my entire life of uh, only being happy if I had certain money or relationship and kids or whatnot. And um, I felt pretty bad. And um, when I first woke up, I actually couldn't talk to anybody. I asked my sister um, to actually be the uh, I couldn't emotionally handle being in contact. Uh, with anybody. So I didn't know what was going on in the outside world. But in the outside world, um, all the people around the world who know me from performing around the world, they all wrote the, did these videos, uh, fundraised and beautiful uh, comments on Facebook. Um, so what awaited me as I was finally able to um, accept or start connecting to the outside world uh, were people from high school, from college, from uh, my 20s and 30s. However, nobody from middle school, so middle school people out there, I don't know why you didn't step up, but everybody else um, throughout my life, they they shared love. And what that taught me, it was interesting. I kind of knew that people who loved me, loved me. But what was more stark, or what, what struck me more were the people, like I had a guy in India who I taught one lesson to like 10 years ago that changed his life. And he's now doing acrobatic dance. And he said, the way that you taught him 
who you were as you showed love and knowledge um, has always impacted him. And I know as a teacher and a performer, um, I got to see, wow, my life has not, even though I didn't meet the standard of a successful marriage or have kids, um, look at what I did do. And that to me feeds into the narrative of just not listening to that bad wolf who's saying what should be and listening to the reality of the love of what is there. And we're always looking for what we're missing instead of appreciating what we had. And as a performer, I was like, wow, I actually did impact thousands of people um, and was enough that whole time. Meanwhile, I didn't feel like I was. So what was it like? It was a beautiful, I could tell you it's, it's um, I think to some degree, everybody should have, a, have their eulogy read to them while they're still alive. And I felt that was like a chance for me to um, never forget that I'm way more significant than I ever realized. And I don't think I'm alone. I think most people struggle with um, not noticing the impact that they have because it's a big world and sometimes it's isolating, especially during the pandemic. But even when you smile at somebody, you impact them far more than you ever know. Um, easier to tell the people you love and are connected to, harder with the ones that you're mildly connected to. And I know I was just saw somebody on jogging past me. I was feeling kind of down the other day. And the moment he smiled at me, my day was different for the for like six, six seven hours because that energy he gave me. He didn't, you know, he doesn't know. I'll probably never see him again. It's New York City. But um it's just amazing how more connected we realize. And we have to decide, um, I have to decide uh, it's useful to feed the wolf that gives us the love. Um, and not fall into that pattern of not not only what should be, but also what we're missing. Is there another question? Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to ask you also, like, how do you remember these dreams so vividly? Were you right. writing your dreams as soon as you woke up or? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I When I woke up, I talked to my brother first, um, then my sister. And I told them both. It was very hard to wake up because when you dream for that long, this reality we're living in now doesn't seem real. Do you know, like, I think everybody experiences when they wake up sometime and they want to just go back to sleep because what they're dreaming of seemed more enjoyable and, and, and such like this. It was like that for a week for me. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and that all those, it's interesting. You, I remember, I, I specified four dreams, but I remember probably hundreds uh, at the time, and I would just share them with my family. But the ones I shared in the book were the ones that stood out. You know, like sometimes when you, um, you you wake up in the morning, you know you had some nightmare at like 12 at night, and you went back to sleep. Um, it was kind of like that, except magnified by, you know, a, a month <laughs> where you had like, yeah. And so um, you, you carry, when, when my, um, my stepfather's uh, new wife, is a dream specialist. And she says that when you have a profound dream, it stays with you for years um, and that you never forget. So it was kind of like that. And I can remember elements of other ones, but the ones that changed my life spiritually uh, stayed with me. So yeah, how did I know? Well, when I woke up, I actually didn't know. I thought that that was the real world. I thought the reality we're living in now was kind of like um, not real. And, you know, they, and I read on my medical charts that I, they said I didn't handle returning to this world so well. <laughs> it took took a while. I kind of the way I interpreted that was a little bit different, but I do remember the moment I was explaining. I was trying to tell my 
my sister, who's a great artist, about the way that there is these internet cafes um, that exist within the walls. And if you could just connect to that, you'll situate yourself in new artistic brilliance. And I was so sure of myself that this existed um, until she pointed out that it couldn't. And then the moment I that wall crumbled, um, all the walls crumbled and I, I permanently came back to this world. So it was not easy and it was not fun, but all the, all the dreams stayed with me as real as, as real as they, they are now and impacted me uh, one year later to this day. Wow, that's very interesting because for most people, the experience is you just wake up and you forget or sometimes it's just like some parts of a dream stay with you. Right. But I guess like, it, your, dream, your brain also is going through so much stress and drama that yeah. uh, probably staying there for so long, it was very well cemented in, in your psyche, I guess. And that's really surprising and very good. Yeah. Yeah. It, they, they say, I know my psychiatrist uh, uncle was quite surprised. I remembered the dreams and he didn't quite believe me. And um, I do know, I think uh, there's, there's uh, it's, it's debated, but the research is, is, is goes back, you know, some people say different things about the consciousness, but I could say for sure, no doubt I was awake and, and alert and thinking and, um, I talked to other survivors and they said the same thing about their dreams. But then I, you're right. I also know coma survivors who've been in coma for six months and said it felt like nothing. So I think people's experience might be different. Um, I know for me, I write my dreams every single day, uh, multiple times over the course of a night uh, for decades. So I have a particular relationship to remember them. So I might have been super well suited for that. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But I do know that um, it was not fun to come back to this world. And I could tell you, I'm not the only one, like when, when you experience, you know, it might've been God, it might've been good drugs, hard to say, but when you get into that coma. <laughs> Sometimes who knows? It's yeah, a it's, a it's hard to draw the line. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's hard, but I, I could say it, 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 it was an immense struggle. And I, I, I do see a trauma specialist uh, about, about this. And she says, yeah, lots of patients, um, they struggle coming back to the world because they touch a level of peace that um, you don't experience in, in any place else. And it was only, I could say now it's not an issue, but for many months it was. And I would just have to rehearse recognizing, recognizing the world as it is, recognizing the suffering that I'm about to enter into, but supersede that with my joy of what I wanted to do in the world. And that was a process I had a fight for months to get there. And now I don't have that anymore. I wake up ready to go, but it's not easy to come back. Mm. I can imagine. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you also, um, you, you mentioned that you have a strong drive to do things, mostly based on the fact that you felt like that was what determined your value. Is there anything also that makes you feel like, because you're a teacher also, uh, and that implies a lot of sacrifice and sometimes making a lot of compromises, that is there, is there anything that, that breeds that purpose outside of you? Or is like, is it all just, I want to feel like I'm a value person? Or is, is, is there ex an experience that you've had that you feel like I want to give back or I was so fortunate 
that I had this special person that taught me this and I want to give back? Like what, what, what is, what are the things that drive you to go back to the school or at least when you were uh, going to the school and it was really difficult? Yeah. Um, I, I was, I'm not sure when it, I think it was that trip to India I was describing to you earlier where I thought I was going to become a spiritual master of some sort and realized I was just horrific <laughs> at this uh, vocation. And it was recognizing that I just love people and I love thinking and growth. And so leaving, um, finishing college, and then I was, Teach for America is an amazing organization. I don't know if I could have made it through my first few years without them, but they make you believe, hey, look, especially in the beginning, they gave you the toughest classrooms in, in, the, in the country and maybe even the world. And um, they, make, they make it clear that you're on a mission that um, you cannot give up. Um, and that level of uh, sacrifice, I think I did it out of duty, less, um, not because I wanted to give, but really because it was in some ways it was a selfish joy of being significant. I, you know, it's funny. I spent two years in the last 28 years not teaching. And in those two years, I you know, teaching is really difficult, but you never question your value when you're a school teacher in the city or a difficult class because you are a mess. It's difficult as it is, you don't question it. And in those two years I didn't teach, even though I was performing and teaching dance, there was an emptiness that, that absolutely was there. And it almost hides the pain that comes sometimes in life with what purpose you're, you're looking for. So that's a roundabout way. I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> But to, to answer your question, um, I didn't. I wasn't motivated from trying to give. I was motivated by just the, the desire to make the world better, and that for me evolved out of connection. Just the desire that I just love connection more than anything else. Um, as I got older in my career, you know, being a middle school teacher is probably the hardest <laughs> because uh, you you often don't see the results of your efforts. And I do have kids come to me five, 10 or 15, 20 years later to thank me, but you don't get it in the moment. And so you do this uh, year after year. Uh, sometimes you do, but often you don't. Um, you do it year after year. It can break the mind down to thinking maybe you're not so significant. You know, uh, when I woke up uh, from the coma, I was told that all these kids were um, so upset and glad that I lived. My first thought was, oh, they just want a good grade. I don't believe that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that like, Is a cynic, the cynic on you? Yeah, it was like, that, that's a, such a veteran teacher, like been in the system too long, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> think of, think of, think of. I laugh at it now, but I really did have that perspective. And um, so it, when, when that's the case, the question is why, why to teach? And it's because I just never, it's the same reason why I, I became a salsa dancer. I was a terrible salsa dancer at the, yeah, I started when I was 22. I had no, I was a football player, not a Latin dancer. And um, I had all these people just like roll their eyes when I asked them to dance. I used to do this thing, I used to go to a Latin club and, and um, when 10 women said no, then I would go home, but I wouldn't until then. And I would just, I wouldn't give up, you know, you know, it's terrible. And so there's something in me that just doesn't give up when I have a strong goal. And teaching is like that too. It's like, even when um, not, you know, my, my ultimate goal is, is liberation in every way and anything falling short. I, I was always getting the top scores in my school or second for reading scores. I was mostly reading teacher for 20 years. 
but still didn't achieve my goal of like kids being completely uh, transformed in some way. And, and it felt short of that. That was part of me uh, having this old weird vision of what happiness was. And coming back after waking up, I realized, boy, that was, that, that was something I needed to shift. It's so not about, it's about what you do. And I've always told that, they're like, oh, you know, Dave Parrish, you're great. You're, you're, you're making a big difference. And, you know, unless they were president, <laughs> I didn't feel happy, you know? And um, I, I changed that now. I, I, I'm much better at looking at, this is, these are the small ways I'm impacting in the best way I can. And let's celebrate every step of the way instead of uh, having these lofty goals. Still have the lofty goals, but uh, not settling my happiness based on those goals, but basing on every step I put towards uh, achieving that. Did I answer your question? I think I might not have. <laughs> no, I, I think you definitely answered uh, the question. I just feel like uh, very personal and different for everyone. And it's difficult to navigate yourself when you're trying to explain your your motivation to do the things that you do. Like it, every Everyone that I've asked that question, they always sometimes go into tangents and stuff like that. But that's because they're trying to navigate... Because if we all knew exactly why we do the things that we do, mm-hmm. we'll be in such an elevated uh, sense of self, you know, that mm-hmm. we'll be like, okay, you don't have any any problems in your life, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. It was connection. I, I, I love connection and I love growth. Yeah, that that for me is is, is everything. Yeah, I can definitely sympathize. I think we both sympathize yeah. with that in, in a way. We all, all humans want to have some connection. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think like that experience that you've had uh, begs the question of how, like in what ways your life has changed. You've mentioned in some ways that now you have a better understanding of where your happiness lies and what you want to do. And now you, you understand the connection that people have with you and, and how much appreciation there is out there for what you do. What do you feel it's like what is different from David Paris after COVID from David Paris before COVID? Yeah. So in addition to, to being happier with the process and not just being a destination uh, level of happiness and also tearing apart the illusions of, of what should, what I should have in order to be happy and constantly trying to look at what I do have and no expert at it, but I'm certainly on that journey of finding it. I'd say the the other thing that's changed the most is I stopped thinking I'm right. <laughs> I uh, you know I've been given the gift of forgetting lots of stuff, and I used to argue with people all the time about how right I was, and I can't do it anymore because I'm forgetting that I have you know glasses on my head and I'm looking for them, or you know <laughs> I can't find my keys and they're in my hand. That's just like oh boy, uh, I've been given the the <laughs> the joy of a, of a big ego you know <laughs> collapse there. But yeah, I think uh, mostly it, it's an appreciation of celebrating each step of the way. Um, when you have a near-death experience, I know I'm, I, I've talked to other people who've had it too. It's 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 a life-changing experience that re-emphasizes that we're here for a short period of time, and there's not a day it doesn't go by that I don't face existential pain over our predicament as human beings. So in some ways, I'm challenged to live a spiritual life in a way that I was not that I could coast by and watch a baseball baseball game and not care about anything now I can't live that way the moment I live a meaningless life I experience suffering um, and I can't do it and um, 
So it, it, it's been a uh, constant impetus to make the most of life because I'm confront, I've, I've confronted death head on. Since you had so many people working to keep you alive, and I really like the, we both like the format of your book that showed all of the names and all of the people who were involved in your story. How, what do you think the best way to show your gratitude for all the people who showed up for you and pay it forward? How is the best way to do that in your life? Well, I gave copies to everybody <laughs> and they gave it to people. <laughs> and the nurses, I didn't get to see the doctors, but I talked to all the nurses and they were, you know, it's funny, nurses, um, they don't, they, they generally don't get to see their patients. They're discharged and that's it. And they were so thankful to not only hear how I was doing, but then also to be recognized for the incredible work they do. And then also to, uh, you know, so many nurses saw thousands of people die. I, I know a whole bunch of not doctors and nurses who's uh, witnessed so much death and to share somebody who's still back in life and thriving is great. But I'm almost one year later, I'm just about ready to do a performance. So I talked to the hospital staff and I told them when I left that I teach them some salsa dance lessons and I'm going to, uh, I, I want to do a show and, and we're, we're, we're trying to set that up um, for the month of July. And, and that's my way, a small way of giving back. But the book is, is the biggest way. And I give it out digitally. Anybody in the audience would like a copy for free, uh, just email me at davidparisbooks.com. And uh, it's, it's an amazing, I, tr I think, I hope I did a good job of showing how much, I didn't know the medical community is there protecting us in the worst moments. I've never spent overnight at a hospital. And after that experience, I'm so grateful. And, and I know hopefully most people haven't had that same experience, but those who have know that the medical community is just one of the incredible heroes, even before the pandemic hit. And those who worked during the pandemic, they did things that were way, way above anything we could ever understand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think um, I'm speaking for both of us when I say that your story was just such a beautiful depiction of human nature and a great reminder that connection is key and yeah. gratitude for other people and for ourselves in these in these dire situations will help us get through and persevere. Yeah. And we're just we're just so lucky that we got to read your book and whoever is listening, I'm sure yeah. will love to read it too. Definitely find it. Yeah. You can get a free copy. Just email me um, on my website, or if you'd like a physical copy, um, Amazon has it. It's a COVID story. Uh, very soon I'll have some stuff on YouTube. Uh, people have been asking me to do an audio version because uh, I think I did a good job writing, but people say I'm better speaker than I am writer. So <laughs> they, well, how are you going to do all the voices? Yeah, that's a great question. I hired some people, some voice actors uh, to do different voices and they were, they were good. But in the end, I'm just going to uh, read them through my voice and it, it might be terrible. I don't know. For those people who don't know, it's an oral history. So you literally have people's uh, uh, transcript going on. So it might be a little funky and I'm still working it out. But one of the voice actors just said, don't sweat it. Just read the person's name and say what they say. And Use your Brooklyn accent. Like I have a small Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely uh, an enlightening read, and it's worth reading if you can find it. And mm -hmm. and we're really looking forward to finding it on YouTube. 
and uh, experience it again because I, again I feel like there are so many golden nuggets in there that anybody can um, benefit from mm-hmm. uh, learning how not only how harrowing and difficult uh, this sickness can be but also how much the medical community as you mentioned the the community that people have around around them like sometimes it's as you said it's difficult to really see to really perceive on a day-to-day basis how many lives you touched and how many how mu- how many of those lives are willing to do whatever they can to be there for you and uh, that the book is a great uh, reminder of the humanity of people and that we are still we're still a community that cares for each other and that uh, you can still, even though you're going through uh, something so difficult, you can still have a sense of humor and learn something from it and take something from it. So if you can find it, uh, we'll put a link to it uh, so you can support David and yeah. also check his other work because yeah. you've, you're actually also a very prolific writer and uh, we love the YouTube videos of the... I think are just chapters of like the the books yeah. animated, which was really really funny. Yeah, on YouTube, if you look up a David Paris books or Laughable Legends, I have a bunch of short stories uh, that I had animated, and then also wrote two satires that primarily are for adolescents that are, but also the the adults will get the references. So that and those I those are already on YouTube, so you can check that out. Um, immediately and they're pretty funny right they're they're good yeah yeah they're yeah, great they're the good. animation's great the narration yeah. yeah it's really engaging and I think it will help a lot of students who are maybe a little more reluctant to read yeah for sure it's for reluctant readers like again New York City kids most of them don't like reading so these I wrote these books for them <laughs> yeah right uh, is there anything else that you would like to our audience to know about you or where they can find you any social medias or anything yeah, you can check me out, um, David Paris Books. Also, my dance company, Paradiso Dance, P-A-R-A-D-I-Z-O, dance.com. Um, you can, on YouTube, if you are interested in seeing the shows that we did that got us to the semifinals, um, we, that's also, if you put Paradiso Dance, you can see that. Uh, I also have a bunch of other stuff, but those are the main things. <laughs> I could talk forever about other projects, but those, those, those are the big things. And thank you guys so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure. And, and um, yeah, thank you so much. We hope to see you in New York. We are working I was on... about to say, I'm going to see you in Tokyo, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, New York yeah. or Tokyo. <laughs> right, right. We, we won't be here much longer, but we will likely be visiting New York at some point. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. definitely hit me up. I'd love to hang out. We sure, will. Sure. We'd love to hang out with you. We've just gained so much out of talking to you in person, especially after reading your book. Like you said, we got to know you through yeah. reading the book and it's just been a real pleasure to yeah. sit down and talk and learn so much about your journey. Yeah. And we're so lucky that we haven't had to experience that ourselves, but yeah. for you to share that with us and our listeners is yeah. so invaluable. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and uh, to our listeners, uh, you know where you can find us. And if you want to listen and support us to, so that we can bring more people as enlightening as uh, David, 
Uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash don't tell my grandma. Uh, you can also send us an email to podcast at don't tell my grandma.com and our social medias, Twitter, uh, a journey for wisdom where four is the number and Instagram is a journey for wisdom. And yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much, David, for Thank joining you, us. Thank you, David. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so and much. And also, YouTube. If you're look, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, don't forget to subscribe, hit the like button and the bell and the things. You know what to do. Uh, and don't tell my grandma. Don't tell my grandma. Right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>